I'm Tom Morello, and you're listening to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. Hello, David. Hello, Steve. Good to have you here, as always. And it's also good to have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Today, our guest will be Peter Maberduke, the Director of Public Citizens Access to Medicine Program. Public Citizen is one of many organizations, including health groups in Peru, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, and Chile, who've been calling for Joe Biden to step up and bring down the barriers that prevent equitable access to COVID vaccines and treatment. In May 2021, the Biden administration promised to support waiving intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines at the World Trade Organization. Patents and other intellectual property laws make it easy for big pharma companies to price gouge on vaccines, tests, and treatment, and make it hard for people to access affordable generics. We'll ask Peter how the Biden administration measures up and about his work at Public Citizen and the United Nations Organization, the Medicines Patent Pool. Now, I always refer to the US Chamber of Commerce as the Death Star. Recently, the Death Star has been attacking the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Rohit Chopra, for cracking down on corporate crime, or as they put it, trying to, quote, radically reshape, unquote, American finance. Apparently, that's a bad thing. Why would a respectable business organization do that? Maybe because the chamber represents a rogues gallery of corporate criminals, law-breaking big banks, corporate polluters, big tech monopolists, and wage thieves. Public citizens Rick Claypool has written a report detailing that corporate crime spree. And then the second half of the show, he'll join us to tell us why the Death Star is launching an advertising drive and screaming their head off about corporate crime enforcement. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. But first, our guest has a relatively cheap plan for vaccinating the world. Who's trying to stop him? David? Peter Maberduke is the director of Public Citizens Global Access to Medicines Program. He is also on the governance board of the Medicines Patent Pool, which is a United Nations organization dedicated to increasing access to life-saving medicines to lower-income countries. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Peter Maberduke. It's great to be with you. Welcome indeed, Peter. Our listeners who have been vaccinated and boosted, especially interested in what you're going to have to say. You know, they go down to their doctor's offices or the drugstore chains or whatever, and they get vaccinated and they get a sense of what single payer is because they just show whatever card they have to show and they don't have to pay for their vaccination. But the government has to pay. The taxpayer has to pay. So I want you to talk about the link between the taxpayers' billions of dollars providing research and development findings for these drug companies to produce their drugs, including the vaccine? And how much is the taxpayer being charged for each of these vaccinations when companies like Pfizer and Moderna hard-line contracts with the government procurement officials? So I want people to understand before you go into how to expand the access to these drugs, including the vaccines, to the people around the world, that you, the taxpayer, funded a lot of the research and development that Pfizer is taking credit for, and what is Pfizer making per shot here? 
Certainly. Well, when some of us think about pharmaceutical research, you might think about a, a pharmaceutical corporation. But in fact, the world's leading funder of biomedical research are the publicly funded National Institutes of Health with a budget of about $40 billion per year that is instrumental in the development of most, and some would say all, new medicines at some stage in their life cycle, either via the involvement of federal scientists or early stage research grants that lead to medicines or later stage development. We can look at the example of the NIH Moderna vaccine, and it is the NIH Moderna vaccine, the people's vaccine, not just the Moderna vaccine. And that's because early on, it was NIH and other public entities that were funding coronavirus research, $700 million in early coronavirus research publicly. It was understood that there would be another coronavirus-related threat as far back as 15 years ago. You recall that SARS and, and MERS were coronaviruses as well. By comparison, pharmaceutical corporations did very little investigational research into coronaviruses. Later on, it was federal scientists that collaborated with Moderna over the course of four years to develop what became the NIH Moderna vaccine. Operation Warp Speed then paid for its development and later its purchase and distribution. And in the end, taxpayers paid for about 99% of the development of the NIH Moderna vaccine and paid Moderna about $10 billion in public money to bring that vaccine across the line. Moderna, meanwhile, has about $35 billion in supply deals lined up through the end of 2022. So when we look at the world's most effective COVID vaccine, which is NIH Moderna and, and Pfizer and others close behind, that's really been a public project through and through, even though we are privatizing the profits and not retaining for the public nearly enough say in how those vaccines are, are ultimately used and shared with the world to stamp out the pandemic. Not to mention the price. Let's go to the price now. People go and get a vaccine. They don't have to pay. The government has signed the contract with Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, to pay so much per dose. Give them an idea of the gouging here. There was a letter to the editor recently of the Post by some medical professors that gave staggering figures here. Can you help us with that one, Peter? Well, as I say, I guess that there's been about $10 billion in public investment in the vaccine. Moderna and Pfizer, others say they're going to be increasing the prices of the vaccine as we move out of the acute pandemic and into the endemic. Moderna's charged the United States around, let's see, $15 to $20 per shot. In some cases, actually charged low-income countries more. Charged Botswana, for example, where Omicron was first detected, $29 a shot. So the burden is not evenly shared. But when you think about the fact that like the public paid for it in the first place, anything over the cost of manufacturing is essentially a public ripoff. Pfizer, I think, is slated to, let's see, it was a quadruple revenues and double profits. I might have it backwards, you know, over the over the course of the coming year. So it's been an incredibly lucrative period for corporations with not enough accountability for the public. The other challenge now, of course, is you know, as you say, there has been this period of government investment to the tune of billions in purchasing the shots. So we just had, for example, the U.S. government is like searching the couch cushions for money to pay for its continuing pandemic response and is diverting $5 billion in other pandemic response activities in order to pay Pfizer for its COVID treatment so that the U.S. government can launch test-to-treat program and continue to provide 
medicine-free, as you say, to the people. But that comes at all kinds of costs, right? It, it comes at a cost of our government's ability to provide other services. And we're now entering a position where, in part because of GOP obstructionism, in part because of White House and Democratic mismanagement, the U.S. government is not going to have continuing funding to provide these medical interventions for free indefinitely. And so we're, we're going to be seeing and feeling that pinch more in the future out of pocket when we go and, and seek either a, a booster shot or a course of treatment. Have you seen any of these contracts that Pfizer attorneys and Moderna attorneys hoist on the federal government? And if so, doesn't it make sense to make them public? Some have leaked, including contracts you know, with a number of countries over time. We've reviewed and analyzed some of those contracts, the, the Pfizer contracts. For example, it makes a great deal of sense to make them public. You know, I think an overarching problem here, Ralph, is that we are still in the middle of a pandemic that has cost 15 million people their lives, according to the World Health Organization and counting. And the response in many areas is not really being dictated by governments. It's being dictated by corporations. And what I mean is... Moderna and Pfizer and others have decided when to sell their vaccines, to whom, at what price, and under what terms and conditions. And then those terms and conditions, they keep secret and they retain the right to penalize governments that speak out about the terms and conditions of the contracts at all. So we largely, we only know what we know through the occasional leak. But what we know from those leaks, you know, in addition to sometimes issues of price, is that we know that the companies are retaining for themselves. Pfizer, for example, is retaining for itself. It can prevent a country from accepting vaccine donations. So if it doesn't have enough vaccine under its contract, or if Pfizer is late, as the corporations have frequently been, in delivering vaccines, countries can't necessarily just accept a vaccine donation through another service without the express permission of the well, corporation. Peter, what is the leverage that Pfizer and Moderna have over all these governments? I mean, some of these are command economies. You know, they're run by dictators. Some of them are leftist governments in South America. Can't they say, hey, you're not going to push us around like this? The WHO can require compulsory licensing. Well, you've looked into how Pfizer silences governments all over the world in vaccine negotiations. Give us a sense of what's the leverage here and why can't the WHO invoke its emergency powers? The leverage is shortages. The leverage is that, you know, in the first year of the pandemic in particular, the first year after vaccines were introduced, there were very few sources of supply. And as you know, most countries did not receive significant quantities of vaccine at all initially. But this is an artificial problem as well. This, prescription drug corporations have had many countries over a barrel because countries were desperate to get any initial shipment of vaccine however they could to care for their most vulnerable and to begin to get vaccination rates up. But of course, it's also the case that, as you say, governments can choose to share technology in the first place, to license patented inventions, to launch public production projects. The, the U.S. government has tremendous authority, for example, through the Defense Production Act, through Bayh-Dole, through a series of federal powers to insist that corporations share their vaccine technology with the world, share vaccine recipes with the world, or to launch a, a public production program to ensure U.S. preparedness in the future. So we could diversify supply and teach more manufacturers to produce and avert some of these shortages in the future. But in, as we've seen over the course of the past year, year and a half, 
many countries have been hesitant to irk the companies that way. We've sort of had a dual problem of corporate power and lack of international cooperation or an insufficient global response to adequately resource the response to stand up new manufacturing and to liberate that technology for humanity. However, there are some very promising developments there, including, for example, a project called the mRNA Technology Transfer Hub with a company called Afrogen in South Africa and, and contributed to significantly by the World Health Organization. It's just one example, but it's an exciting one where mRNA, which is really the standout technology that pandemic far beyond 90% effective in reducing hospitalizations and death, has surprised everyone, but it's been controlled, right, by Pfizer and Moderna and, and limited others. The new WHO project is to teach the world how to use, make mRNA for a variety of medical applications, COVID vaccines, but potentially treatments and, and other interventions as well. They've set up a hub in South Africa run by this company, Afrogen, and spokes, 15 manufacturers so far in other parts of the world that can come to the hub and train and learn how to make mRNA. They've already reverse engineered Moderna and they're working, it's like Prometheus, you know, they're taking fire from the gods. They're working on sharing that technology with humanity. So we have options. We've got to invest and we have to look past corporate power and just insist that pandemic decisions are going to be made by governments accountable to people rather than by corporations accountable to shareholders. I know some of our more informed listeners are now saying, what about the Russian vaccine, the Chinese vaccine, and the intense work being done in Cuba to develop various vaccines against various variants of the coronavirus, COVID-19? Yeah. What can you tell us about the Russian, the Chinese, which have been distributed around the world? They're not deemed as effective. And what's going on in Cuba? Well, there are some promising results so far out of Cuba with Sobrana and Abdullah. Some efficacy rates over 90%. We're waiting to see what WHO says you get through the remaining clinical trial results before we take a position on the vaccines. But the initial results are promising. And what's also promising is that Cuba has committed to distributing tens of millions of doses to other developing countries, has committed to technology transfer, that is using its own personnel, scientists, and staff to help train manufacturers in other parts of the world to make either the same vaccines or to learn the lessons of the Cuban vaccines to produce their own. So, you know, I think Cuba politically is setting a very positive example for paths forward, and hopefully the vaccines will really prove to be low-cost high yield, you know, interventions that will support the global response. I think we have less positive views of Sputnik and Sinovac and, and the other vaccines that have come out of China and Russia so far, just because of lower efficacy rates, as you say. And this also has sort of been one of the challenges of the pandemic. When Oxford AstraZeneca and the Serum Institute, that was really expected to be the vaccine that powered the global response through the WHO COVAX program and others. And when they ran into both production problems and then India had its crisis and there was a need to, to keep dose, more doses in India, the world was really left without a solution. Moderna and Pfizer were selling to high-income countries and Moderna in particular was not at scale that way. And so you had many countries that didn't have elsewhere to go other than China and to a, a lesser extent Russia. But the problem with that was that it meant that you know we had sort of two levels of vaccine apartheid. One was just absolute scarcity. Rich countries were getting vaccines and poor countries were not. But then as the pandemic progressed, rich countries were getting the best vaccines and 
we were providing poor vaccines to poor people, essentially, globally, which is intolerable, right? Everyone should have access to the standard of care, and that requires getting a lot more serious about the power of corporations like Pfizer and Moderna and getting a lot more serious about standing up effective, diverse manufacturing around the world and then the resources to distribute those tools. You know, what about asking the impertinent question here? I mean, what does Pfizer and Moderna contribute here other than marketing and profiteering? You got the bulk of the research is done and could be done by National Institutes of Health contracting out to medical schools and other sources of scientific research, the way they did when they developed the anti-malarial drugs because the drug companies didn't want to develop anti-malarial drugs that would have helped the situation in Vietnam because it wasn't profitable enough. So the Walter Reed Army Hospital and the Bethesda Naval Hospital, they developed their own internal drug research and development company, and they developed some hepatitis, anti-hepatitis drugs, all on a shoestring budget compared to the huge amount of expenditure that the drug companies inflate to try to show how much they're risking when they spend more on marketing and advertising than they do on research, as the Public Citizens Health Research Group has pointed out over time. Why even bother? You have a global emergency here. 15 million people have died. Over a million in the United States have died, not to mention the long-haul effects of COVID, not to mention the disruption of family life, of the economies, of our hospitals, of our lack of preparedness, importing from Italy simple protective equipment because a global managed trade decided it was better to import it from Italy than to build it in the United States. I mean, who needs these companies in this kind of emergency? What do they contribute? Well, it's a serious question. I mean, I think under our sort of current political economy of it, I mean, Moderna contributed serious research as well. It was a partner with NIH in the development of the vaccine and the mRNA platform technology on which it's based. Pfizer famously did not accept Operation Warp Speed money, but it did take $450 million through its partner, BioNTech, from the German government. So there's always a public role, but there can be a significant private research and development role as well, and there was in the case of these vaccines. However, as you say, number one, in the case of NIH Moderna, you know, we paid for it, even if there were Moderna scientists involved. And secondly, there is a question about sort of whether that's necessary, what parts of that are necessary. Couldn't some of this be done more efficiently publicly? So I think it's serious. I think there are experiments in that, you know, going on now with sort of different ways to insert the public further into the production process, to have NIH involved not only in early stage research, but later stage development, to look at public production of medicines like insulin, and see if we can come up with a different arrangement where we're not paying for monopoly while millions of people die. It's, of course, you know, it's a, it's a delicate and serious proposition because paying for innovation and being serious about innovation is very important as well. But the public role here is, is essential and has proven very effective over time. So at a minimum, we need much stronger oversight of the companies. We need governments to exercise the rights that they have in these medical technologies, ensure that they're shared, write conditions into the grants that companies take at the outset that set limits on reasonable pricing. We had sort of fair pricing written into NIH contracts up until the 1990s, and then it was written out of the contract. So we have to write it back in. There's some opportunity now because there will be a new National Institutes of Health director 
sometime soon, who, you know, potentially could take a different approach to pharmaceutical industry cooperation that Francis Collins has over the past 10 years. So we've learned very hard lessons. A lot of people have died. A lot of public money has been needlessly wasted. And assuredly, we can do much, much better if we stand up. Let's go to the grassroots around the world. This coronavirus has been around now for two and a half years. What percentage of people in Africa, Asia, South America have been vaccinated compared to what percentage have been vaccinated in Europe and U.S., North America? I haven't checked the tracker in the last couple of weeks. There are still countries that are in single digits, I believe, in sub-Saharan Africa. Globally, though, the total is 60% or so, I think. It, it's, it is increasing, had been increasing very quickly, and has leveled off a little bit recently because of the combination of lack of resources to deliver the shots that we have, and because so many people have been infected, that it, it is moving from front of mind for some governments and others. But we've seen extreme disparities over the course of the pandemic where you know, rich countries were able to surpass the 70% target set by the World Health Organization relatively quickly, while we still had single digits in the poorest countries and you know, well under 50% in many middle-income countries. Then, as we say, it's also you know pretty significant difference whether people were vaccinated with NIH Moderna or with Sinovac in terms of what they could expect from breakthrough infection people who were vaccinated by those statistics but received a poor vaccine were more, still more likely to die or suffer serious illness. So, you know, the, the real tragedy now, Ralph, is that our own government, much of the world, is somewhat moving on from the COVID response. We had a very difficult fight over keeping up funding for the global response this spring. And uh, we're so thus far not been successful in contributing the billions more that are needed to keep rolling out doses. So now we're at sort of a point where millions of doses are expiring unused on tarmacs for lack of that sort of political commitment to keep fighting. But, you know, there's an awful lot of people working the problem and trying to find ways on limited resources to up those vaccination rates. WHO has sort of moved to a position, well, many health researchers have moved to a position where now the, the target really needs to be reaching all the most vulnerable people rather than 70% in every country of the general population. Is there any truth to, uh, among the GOP claims on Capitol Hill where the Republicans are holding up $15 billion of additional aid for the COVID-19 pandemic? that there's so much in the pipeline already from the federal government that they haven't used. And that's why they're not letting the Democrats pass the $15 billion as they both supported the $40 billion for Ukraine. There's no truth to that. There is a situation where, so there were a, a small number, a very few Republicans, including Mitt Romney, who were trying to get a deal through with a few of their colleagues to put some more billions up per the Democrats request. And when the deal failed and the administration was able to divert money from other priorities to keep paying for the free vaccines that you mentioned, Romney and some of those other Republicans felt burned. But to be clear, it's not because like the money is just lying around. It's because we're sacrificing other needs and we're, we're prioritizing continuing to get people vaccinated. The money is desperately needed, right? The money is desperately needed 
nationally to keep up any sort of response, to keep up the free services that you mention and to combat the extremely high incidents that we're seeing right now, as well as the probability of another wave in the in the near future. It's also needed globally. So like you know, the global response is on ice. People are, our aid agencies and WHO and others are doing what they can, like sort of running on fumes and trying to set up test to treat programs, programs to provide, to expand treatment and to expand testing and provide access, immediate access to free treatment in different parts of the world with extremely, extremely little money. And as a result, rather than rolling out programs like that globally, now that we have effective treatments, they're having to choose a few countries for pilot programs and take months and months to set it up. There's actually been a recent exodus of staff from the U.S. Agency for International Development, which is charged with a significant part of our contribution to global COVID because there's no money and because there's an understanding that the United States is not going to fight the global fight the way that we need to. So the circumstance for congressional funding for the domestic fight is dire. For global, it's positively deadly slash mostly dead. We have basically stopped making significant contributions to the ongoing global pandemic that will kill millions more people because we haven't been able to get a few billion dollars through Congress. What really ticks me off about this, Ralph, is that the Pentagon budget is $813 billion, right? We're talking about, in the end, less than 1% of that proposed defense budget to end a pandemic that has cost so many millions of lives or even to continue fighting it. In the end, we couldn't scrape together $5 billion for the global response. And that's just an ongoing, an ongoing crisis that has our attention every day. Well, if you gave the mission to the Pentagon, there'd be plenty of money. <laughs> well, that's, well, you know, it's good and it's actually an interesting point because, as you know, there are times where aspects of the national defense infrastructure have been involved in medical research and development. You pointed to malaria, where you know, effective malaria treatments were over the past century were developed by the Walter Reed Institutes pertaining to the U.S. Army, you know, because there wasn't a private market for it and they wanted to protect U.S. soldiers abroad. Now, one of the next potential influential technologies is also being developed at Walter Reed. It is a pan-coronavirus vaccine, so potentially able to attack COVID-19, COVID-19 variants, and future coronaviruses that is being developed entirely by public money, entirely in-house by the U.S. Army. And the question is, assuming it proves safe and effective, which we always have to see, but if it does, will that be shared with the world? Will that be handled as a public good? Or will that also be licensed exclusively out to a pharmaceutical corporation to make billions and throttle supply? So that's some of the next advocacy that we have you know, coming up, Ralph, is to insist that the U.S. government share the next generation of technologies and do better than it did this time around. Well, that's something to be very alert of, and I'm sure your group will alert the public in time to make sure that this is a public good because it's funded by the taxpayer and not given to some profiteering drug company. I want to tap into your knowledge on something I don't think public citizens done enough about, and that is too many of our drugs and active materials and drugs are being produced in China, India, under very lax FDA supervision. They don't have enough inspectors over there. You know some of the lives lost in, the, in this country because of a contaminated blood thinner over a decade ago from China. Why is it that the health groups, all the way from the public health associations to the medical groups to public citizen, are not demanding domestic production of critical drugs? There is no production of antibiotics in the United States today. 
That is a national security issue as well as a consumer protection issue. Tell me why the entire coalition of healthcare groups, public groups, and professional groups are not demanding a return to the United States of critical drug production. I take the point, and I certainly agree it's something we can do more on. Something that we have worked on in recent months is calling for a national production program for mRNA vaccines that would be publicly owned, may or may not be contractor operated, a GOCO model, government owned contractor operated model to ensure that that sort of highly effective pandemic technology is made and controlled here so we can better steward that pandemic health technology. We're also looking at some of the same for um, insulin, as I mentioned earlier. But yeah, it's a much bigger issue. Issues of active ingredients where, yeah, the vast majority is produced out of China with too little FDA inspection. We completely agree. So a few things that can be done, of course, we need a heightened FDA inspection, but we can also bring more of that production home. That too requires you know, requires investment. I think one area where you get a little bit of, you know, there's, I sort of, you know, both agree with you and there's like one area of pushback, which is some of this stuff gets tied in with xenophobia, right? And the world has sort of relied on, as you know, drugs made in India saved 20 million lives from HIV AIDS, right? And so there is, there can be value in other sources of production as well. But it's, I think probably the way to look at it is, we need higher quality production. We need better inspections. You need resilience and national security protection of critical technologies in the United States and diversified throughout the world. I think the real push that's come out of the pandemic is for more diverse uh, production that is better resourced and more sharing of technology so that the United States has those capabilities and that oversight and so that other countries do as well. So you don't just get glut in some places and total scarcity in others, mm-hmm. leading to preventable suffering and death. Well, your point on India is, is well taken. In fact, Jamie Love and Robert Weissman, Haddad and others found that drug company in India that broke the back of the price gouging on AIDS medicine by U.S. drug companies supported by the Democratic administration in those days. It was $10,000 per patient per year in Africa, and the drug company in India said, we can do it for $300 per year per patient, and now it's lower than that. But let's talk right at the interface here. You go into a drugstore in the United States, it's hard to find out where the drug is manufactured overseas. The labeling Mm -hmm. is not complete at all. And second, there was a recent article saying that the doctors who prescribe medicines for patients don't know from the drug companies how much those medicines are going to be priced at when they prescribe them. How do we Mm -hmm. deal with those two problems? Country of origin and making price disclosure crisp clear. Well, for price disclosure, at, at least there's been a series of legislative initiatives so that that information can be better and more effectively shared. The, in, the industry resists it, of course, but it's needed. We need price disclosure. We need cost disclosure. That is research and development cost disclosure. And, you know, hopefully this time around in Congress, we will beat pharma. Well, tell us how people can connect with your organization, how they can go to your website and get far more details. I think you've whetted their appetite for a lot more information that they can use. Please visit citizen.org access to learn all about our access to medicines work in the United States. 
and globally. You know, we're fighting here at home to bring medicine prices down and, and to improve supply resilience, as Ralph suggests, and globally to prevent another vaccine apartheid in the future. So we welcome your support. People don't understand when they hear about WHO being required to do this, they should do that, they should do this, they should do that. The budget of WHO is about $5 billion. In a recent year, Apple bought $90 billion of its own stock back. In a recent year, the budget of the major hospital in New York City is larger than the budget of the WHO. The budget of Harvard University is larger than the budget of the World Health Organization. So with all its warts, its mission all over the world is overwhelming its small budget. And of course, Trump wanted to get the U.S. out of WHO and cut its budget in his omnicidal ways of doing things in the White House. Let's put it this way. The companies are expecting quicker approvals, you know, as each approval is submitted. It's very few dissent on the advisory committees. You know, it's just boom, boom, boom. And the clinical studies are becoming smaller and smaller. So. Yeah, I think that's fair, you know, and I, you know, I, I share that instinct. A couple of relevant developments recently. Okay. Did you see this stuff about Agihelm that HRG was involved with? So there, you know, there has been sort of like some recent cases where pushback from the advisory committees has led to at least limited guidance of use. So there's that. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, the other well, thing that has been we... terrible has been the press releases, right, has been a feature of the pandemic has been announcing safety and efficacy via corporate press release rather than through official channels. So that was extraordinary. And that would not have been taken seriously before the pandemic. And now it is being reported as wrote that Moderna announces, Pfizer announces XY results before anyone else has had a chance to review the results. So that, that is certainly an unfortunate sort of diminishing of critical analysis in the public medical sphere that is new to the pandemic. So before we conclude, Peter, is there anything you want to tell our listeners that we haven't covered? Well, you know, you'd sort of suggest in your questions this interest in Latin America, perhaps beyond, I mean, the the treatments, there's a budding treatment access fight beyond the vaccines, right, for the Pfizer drugs. And there's a, a regional push in Latin America. We now have effective therapeutics against COVID, not only vaccines. And scaling up access to those therapeutics is serious global challenge. For one, because of the lack of global funding to provide testing that's a necessary predicate to then provide treatment. But for another, because of absolute shortages and monopoly control of drugs by companies like Pfizer. So one exciting initiative is that in Latin America, many civil society organizations have come together to demand that their governments authorize generic competition with Pfizer's patented COVID treatment, Paxlovid. And if successful, it means that there would be a more robust and diverse and affordable supply of that effective COVID treatment for those countries. Much like these other challenges we've discussed, that requires overcoming the power of the pharmaceutical companies in each of those countries. But it's also a regional effort with which we can show our solidarity. Many middle-income countries struggle to overcome the high prices that they are charged while being excluded from some of the deals that are offered for lowest-income nations. Well, we're out of time. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Peter Maberduke of Public Citizen. He directs the program that tries to 
counter the excesses of the pharmaceutical industry and advance broader access to medicines for people all over the world. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks so much, Ralph. We've been speaking with Peter Mabaduke. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradioHour.com. When we return, we're going to talk to Rick Claypool, also a public citizen, about his report on how the Chamber of Commerce is representing corporate criminals. But first, let's check in with our prime corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your corporate crime reporter morning minute for Friday, July 1, 2022. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The vegan food delivery service Daily Harvest recalled a lentil-based product after customers claimed on social media that they'd become severely sick after eating it. The company said it had received approximately 470 reports of illness or adverse reactions, including gastrointestinal issues and potential liver damage. That's according to a report in the New York Times. Consumers have been using a Reddit forum to share stories about becoming sick after eating the company's French lentil and leek crumbles. One customer described debilitating stomach pain that landed the person in the emergency room. Others said they'd experienced fever, jaundice, and full body itching. More stories from consumers surfaced and spread on TikTok after online influencers received the Daily Harvest product as part of a public relations package from the company. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mokhyber. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is very angry at Rohit Chopra, the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They are launching an expensive ad campaign targeting him for, in their words, trying to, quote, radically reshape, unquote, American finance, as if that was a bad idea. You can almost see the ketchup dripping down the wall. Rick Claypool is research director of Public Citizens President's Office, where he focuses on corporate crime and wrongdoing and the ways corporate power distorts democracy. Rick produces reports on a range of topics, including federal enforcement against corporations, deregulation, and conflicts of interest. Today, we're going to talk about his report about how the Chamber of Commerce members, the same people who don't like Rohit Chopra, have paid $154 billion in penalties. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Rick Claypool. Thank you. Welcome indeed, Rick. The report that you put out January 10th, 2022, it's titled, U.S. Chamber of Commerce members have paid $154 billion in penalties since the year 2000. But it's not all the U.S. Chamber members. It's just the ones that you could disclose because they keep their membership secret. It's just 111 That's corporations right. who belong to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And listeners should realize that although that's a staggeringly high figure, $154 billion in penalties, that reflects a very, very weak law enforcement capability and willpower by the federal government. Very, very low. Probably the enforcement level to be adequate would have to be budgeted and driven by fortitude here in Washington 10 times what it is now. There are very, very low numbers of prosecutors, investigators, and other law enforcement officials against the corporate crime wave. And yet, they still required these companies to pay out $154 billion in penalties. So, first question. I don't recall this report getting much widespread media coverage in January. That's right. There was a Politico story that got a little bit picked up because the release coincided with the Chamber's annual State of American Business 
shindig that they put on. And it happened. The original thing that this was responding to, of course, was the chamber in November, sort of shortly after Thanksgiving, basically using very similar rhetoric to what they're using against Director Rohit Chopra at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Only then it was against the Federal Trade Commission's Lena Khan. And it was the day after the Federal Trade Commission announced a new policy of basically prioritizing criminal referrals from the commission to the the Justice Department to sort of enhance the agency's efforts to fight corporate crime. And the chamber threw a tantrum then just as they're throwing a tantrum now. And I really do think that when the chamber is pushing these anti-enforcement efforts and when it's covered by the press, that is, it is extremely important that the public understand and have any reports on that be contextualized by the fact that the chamber is mad that these agencies are cracking down on corporate lawbreakers because the chamber represents corporate lawbreakers. That's who pays for the chamber to exist. That's who it works for. It's not a sympathetic third-party ideological think tank. It is the voice of corporate crime in Washington. And they come across as, you know, just free enterprise champions when they are really an umbrella for criminal enterprise activities. And listeners, these aren't just financial crimes by banks and insurance companies. These are crimes that endanger the health and safety of the American people. For example, Chevron, oil and gas giant, pleaded no contest to charges for violation of labor, health, and safety standards relating to a refinery fire. Um, Monsanto pleaded guilty to a felony charge of illegally storing a banned pesticide. There are drug companies in this list who have sold drugs and promoted pharmaceuticals that they should not have done on the basis of safety. And it just goes on and on. You have companies like Caterpillar, Citigroup, Duke Energy, DuPont, was charged and pleaded guilty to a price-fixing charge. Eli Lilly, Johnson & Johnson, several violations by that company. J.P. Morgan Chase, Kroger, Merck, Norfolk and Southern Railroad Company, Pfizer, a number of violations and penalties, Union Pacific Railroad. The amazing thing about this is the lack of mainstream media coverage. The New York Times will spend more time on a nonviolent burglary than they would on something like this. In the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, this report should have been all over the media and on TV and radio. And they can't say the public is not supporting tough crackdowns on corporate crime, fraud, and abuse. In your report, Rick Claypool, you cite the following, quote, fighting corporate crime is popular. A recent poll found that 70% of Republicans, 70% of independents, 70% of Democrats want the Biden administration to do more to fight corporate crime. These poll results make sense. Consumers don't want to be ripped off. Workers don't want to be exploited. Honest businesses don't want to compete with companies that get ahead by cheating. And no one wants to live on a planet poisoned by corporate pollution, end quote. Where was that poll? That was a Data for Progress and Revolving Door Project poll that came out in November, I believe. I didn't include it in the report, but there's even, you know, support is even stronger, by the way, 
for holding CEOs accountable for the crimes their companies commit, including being sent to jail. Like this is uh, 82% of Democrats, 74% independents, and 75% of Republicans. And speaking of CEOs, there was an article recently that the top highest 10 paid CEOs in the United States, the top 10 highest paid CEOs in the United States, averaged over $300 million in one year. Each averaged over $300 million. That comes down by my arithmetic to they're getting paid on a 40-hour week, 50 weeks a year, about $2,500 a minute. A minute, listeners, not an hour or a day or week, $2,500 a minute. And that's why they can afford to hire the best lawyers. They could afford to build their own jail. But that's why they get away with so much immunity and impunity. They delegate a lot of the bad stuff down to their companies so they can have deniability. What do you see in the long range, Rick? having corporate crime be a major campaign issue. I mean, with that kind of polling, why why aren't there candidates running for local, state, and federal office? We're not necessarily talking about a majority, but why aren't, say, 50 or 100 members of Congress running for re-election or running to get elected, making this a top priority? Well, of course, I mean, the easiest theory, of course, is part of the the influence over, you know, Congress with political campaign spending for not only groups like the chamber, but corporations themselves and, and all of the corrupting effects of corporate political spending in our elections. Yeah, it's astounding. And, you know, something else I wanted to you know, highlight about the chamber's attack on the CFPB was it's almost comical that the uh, chamber zeroes in on... Chopra's statements about corporate recidivism and repeat offenders as being inaccurate. Now, they could clear this up maybe with a conversation with some of the chamber's members, such as in particular J.P. Morgan, which has been on the receiving end of criminal enforcement actions from the Justice Department, you know, less than five times in recent years, one of which resulted in a guilty plea. And also with, uh, you know, five enforcement actions by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's a problem that, you know, I've been looking at. And that is where, frankly, there is some reason for some hope in some of what the Biden administration has been doing, but they haven't been talking about it nearly enough. The Justice Department has been doing a better job in terms of enforcing the law against corporate recidivists and holding, you know, companies accountable when they breach these leniency agreements, you know, deferred and non-prosecution agreements. But I don't think anybody really is aware of it. And if they talked about it more and more people were hearing about what you know, Director Chopra and Chair Khan are doing and others who are you know, leading the charge to hold corporations accountable, I think many people would be excited to hear that and, and maybe have, even if people are rightly frustrated about the many failures of what's been going on, Given the right-left support in the polls for Mm -hmm. getting tough on corporate crime, law and order, putting the federal cop on the corporate crime beat, it doesn't make sense that there are not at least 50 to 100 members of Congress, progressives that don't rely on Chamber of Commerce-type campaign contributions, are not making this front and center. It's been a real puzzle. 
as to why this is not the case. Now, Senator Warren puts out statements, and once in a while Bernie Sanders puts out statements, but they don't demand hearings. Senator Sanders, the chairman of the Budget Committee, he could have hearings on corporate crime, fraud, and abuse. It affects the federal budget because they rip off Medicare and Medicaid and military contracts. That's all part of the corporate crime wave cost, and he hasn't done that. None of these other members who have some seniority, they haven't had hearings where a public citizen could go up and testify the way we used to in the old days. They haven't had hearings in the House or the Senate. There's something going on, Rick, that you and public citizens have to get to the bottom of. I suggest you put out a report on how the mainstream media ignores coverage of corporate crime. They do cover once in a while. They dig up something, corporate crime, but they rarely editorialize. They rarely urge Congress to have hearings. And what's worse, NPR and public broadcasting are very remiss in their coverage of corporate crime. Of course, they get a lot of funding from corporate contributors. How do you unlock this situation so you don't just keep year after year putting out reports that are largely ignored? How do you unlock this situation? The next step, Rick, give me some advice. <laughs> That's the question. You know, I'm, you know, so I'm, you know, been keeping at it and I'm definitely tenacious with trying to connect with reporters and, and elevate this work. You know, it is a constant source of frustration for me that so much of the corporate crime news is sort of is relegated to the business pages and, and, and framed as, you know, a company is found to have poisoned or killed people and it's reframed as, well, it's bad news for the company that they have been caught <laughs> doing these terrible things. There's very bad seldom- for the stock. That's right. That's right. It's very seldom do you hear the voices of the actual victims of corporate crime elevated. And so I think, you know, that busting these myths of the idea that corporate crime is victimless crime and amplifying, you know, these stories and just making it them more accessible. You know, one of the things that, you know, I know there's a priority for us and, and that, you know, we've worked on is just requiring the government to be more transparent about corporate enforcement, you know, in the way that it does with the government spending, you know, there should be a, you know, a database like the fantastic database that, you know, our friend Phil Matera does for violation tracker, good jobs first, out of the Justice Department and the federal government, that would be a resource for the public, not just you know, experts with the time and, and energy and curiosity to go digging in the weeds. Yeah, well, you know, we've been working with public citizen to get Congress and the Justice Department to establish a corporate crime database. Right. They don't have a database. The press is less likely to report it. They have a street crime database, but they mm -hmm. don't have a corporate crime database. We've been asking attorney generals now for decades, right. going back to the Carter administration, and they keep putting it off or they say, well, we have to have Congress appropriate a budget for this, and we haven't been able to get that done. Here's what I'd like our listeners to realize. We have drafted corporate crime letters to senators and representatives, and not just for Congress Club members. We've drafted them. Some members have sent them in. They've been brushed off by most members, either ignored or form letters. These letters demand congressional hearings. They demand updating the federal corporate criminal code, which is absurdly obsolete. They demand action to protect the American people, their health, their safety, their pocketbooks, their children, their environment, their workplace, their marketplace. And it's not getting very far. 
anything else you'd like to tell our listeners that we didn't cover, Rick? Well, I guess, you know, on that note, you know, to your listeners, you know, if you're interested in this reports and the other reports that I write and that other researchers at Public Citizen are writing, you can find them at citizen.org slash reports, where you'll find, you know, the reports on corporate enforcement and money and politics, which are the issues that I cover, as well as a, as a range of issues uh, across the, all the, you know, health, safety and democracy work that Public Citizen does. You know, you put out a report under Trump administration showing the decline in fines, criminal penalty fines. It was pretty new data that you all combined to compile, and it got virtually no coverage. But now I understand that the Biden administration isn't all that great either. What's your latest on the level of criminal prosecutions and fines by the Biden administration's Justice Department, for example, under Merrick Garland? Yeah, well, it's disappointing, but on the other hand, it's ticking up. You know, so the most recent data that we have is for the fiscal year that was from, you know, literally before they started announcing their, you know, policies that they're going to start trying to ramp up enforcement on corporate crime. So, you know, I won't sugarcoat it. It's not good. It's lower than ever. But I am still hopeful because they actually are, you know, changing policies. I'm seeing results come out with the big cases. It will be more clear, you know, as the months go on. I don't think it's going to be enough in terms of what the increase needs to be to really bring it back, even to, you know, where it was about historic averages, where right now we're looking at there are about 90 corporate prosecutions every year where, you know, the average in the past was was about double that. And it's certainly not enough to deter corporate crime, which should be the standard. It's still the sense that getting caught is so rare and impossible and that the consequences are so minute as to make breaking the law and getting caught worth it, that there's still a great deal of work to do. <laughs> Well, what I'd like to find out more about is how many actual corporate criminal lawyers are there in the Justice Department, and how many enforcement agencies are there in the Department of Health and Human Services and other agencies, so we can total up the number of pursuers of corporate criminality. And I doubt whether, in terms of the number of lawyers working on this, that it is equivalent to any one of the top giant corporate law firms. I think the corporate law firm giants probably have more lawyers than the number of lawyers in the Justice Department working on corporate crime. We don't know exactly what the number is. They don't exactly publicize it, but that would be another good report by Public Citizen. Well, we're out of time. We've been talking with Rick Claypool, who is the regular discharger of data and reports on corporate crime for public citizen. And you can get his reports by going to the website, Rick. It's a citizen.org slash reports. And members of the Congress Club and others send that letter on corporate crime demanding answers to your senators and representatives. If you don't get them, contact us and we'll make the calls to these recalcitrant lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Thank you very much, Rick. Thanks, Ralph. Thanks, Steve. 
we've been speaking with Rick Claypool. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. And that's our show. I want to thank our guests again, Peter Mabaduke and Rick Claypool, both a public citizen. For those of you listening on the radio, we're going to cut out now for you podcast listeners. Stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap Up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour website soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph Nader's weekly column, you can get it free by going to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law has gone virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. And be sure to check out their online gift shop. You'll find books, posters, and flaming pinto magnets and mugs for all the tort fans in your life. That's at store.tortmuseum.org. You should read Capitol Hill Citizen. The pilot issue is out. It's only $5 to cover the shipping. To order your copy, go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we welcome Dr. Bandy Lee back to the program to talk about the January 6th hearings and the psychology of Donald Trump. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you. If you know any parents losing control over their kids to the Internet gulag and the junk food industry, just go to Inspiring Tweens. Dot com, inspiringtweens.com. Inspiring